Thank you all for singing. You may be seated this morning as we come to God's Word. Thank you also to Stan and Marion and Wendy. It's really hard to sing and breathe with a flute and play piano when your heart is grieving, but we needed that, and I thank you for it. In God's providence, we're going to consider the words of Revelation 19 this morning which describe for us in vivid, beautiful terms what Jesus calls in Matthew chapter 22, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a place that Mary Beth Smith and Flavio's mom, Kathleen Lund, and so many others that we love and have gone before us are seated at right now. And so let's read together the first 16 verses of Revelation chapter 19, and then pray as we come to God's Word together today. John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her on the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up from us forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
and on his robe and on its thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pray with me. Father, thank you that as we receive hard news and as our hearts ache and grieve that we can be together in the house of God, that we can be drawing near and assembling on the Lord's day before the throne of grace in order to receive your grace and in order to receive your mercy and in order to receive all of the comfort and consolation and strength and confidence that your living and active word brings to us. And so, Father, would you supply this grace today, even as we have drawn near to your presence to worship you, and even as we are contemplating the realities of life and death and coming to understand the great wisdom that your word would give to us in the midst of those realities. Fill us with hope and fill us with courage and fill us with strength and confidence, Father, that our lives are not our own, that they have been hid with Christ Jesus and you, that this world is not our home, that the treasures of this world are not our hope, but that, Father, your kingdom and your righteousness is our destiny and our reward, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Christ has granted to us by grace, and that he is everything, and that he is our life forever. So be with us as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Solomon, we mentioned yesterday at the memorial service, when Solomon became king, 1 Kings chapter 3 and 4 record for us that he prayed to God to give him wisdom as the king. And God was pleased with that prayer and, and lavished Solomon divinely with more wisdom than anybody around him had. Anybody in Israel or anybody in any of the other lands and kingdoms all around Israel. No one had the wisdom that Solomon had. Now Solomon didn't always use that wisdom. Solomon didn't always live his life according to that wisdom. Solomon also was a sinner and oftentimes lived in the foolishness of his heart. And at the end of his life, looking back on everything, looking back on his experiences, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which is full of wisdom, which is full of life which is full of his journey to try to test every single thing under the sun, every single thing in this world and see if it could provide for him any sense of significance or meaning that would satisfy the, the eternal longings of his heart that God had placed there, the eternity that he sets in all our hearts. And towards the end of his life writing this book, Solomon lets us know that nothing in this world can satisfy those eternal longings, only serving God, only obeying God, only fearing God, only living for that which is eternal can give us hope and joy and meaning and peace in this world. And along the way, Solomon gleaned a lot of wisdom that he shares with us, some of which he writes in the first four verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Now these words don't sit well with unbelievers. 
They rub against the grain because unbelievers are accustomed to and addicted to trying to find all meaning and all significance for life in this world under the sun on this earth where things pass away and are temporal and fleeting, including and especially our own lives in these mortal bodies. Solomon knew better. So he says things like this in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning, the funeral parlor, than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. What do you make of those words? How does that sit with you? I think you understand what he means. Even even this morning, as we come into God's presence, if your heart feels sorrow because of the things that go on in this world, because of the difficult circumstances of your life, because of the the stinging pain of, of loss when somebody that we love dies, you'll know that what that does is it forces you to look to that which is eternal. It forces you to put your hope in things that are not of this world and things that last and have true and ultimate and eternal value. Whereas, when we go to the house of feasting and and we make our lives all about just enjoying what is here and now, the pleasures of this earth, and lay our treasures up here, and that's all we can see, and that's all we do, and that's all we hope in, then in the end there is no hope, because none of it lasts, and we don't last, And we can't take any of it with us. The sorrow points us to that which lasts. Solomon says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And so this morning, I know you're grieving. And I know that the news of Mary Beth's loss has hit you hard. Flavio, brother, I know that the loss of your mother hit you hard. This week. Yesterday we had a memorial service here for a a beloved sister who passed, not suddenly, not unexpectedly. Finally, finally her suffering got to end and be over. And she got to go and be in the presence of her king and her loved ones get to meditate on that reality that she is forever with the Lord and on the great reality that her body will one day be raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 made whole, made free from Alzheimer's disease, made free from heart disease, made free from cancer, made free from any suffering, made free from all death, and and that in that state, she, body and soul, will always be forever with the Lord. That's our hope. And with, with the Lord forever means forever and ever. An incalculable number of days. Myriads of myriads of years. Millions upon millions. Trillions upon trillions. Compared to the 80, 90, 100 years that we get here in this world. It's a fraction. It's a blink. It's a, it's a moment. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So this morning I want to look with you again at the great book of Revelation and remind you that this book is not a book full of dark and scary pictures 
meant to terrify us and make us afraid of the devil who prowls around seeking to devour us and do horrible things in this world. It's a, it's a revelation of that. It's an explanation that everything horrible that's going on in this world ultimately has Satan standing behind it, doing his level best to tear it all apart, to separate people from God and to bring destruction and everlasting death. But that's not the point of the book. The ultimate point of the book is that in spite of all of that, and even in the midst of all of that, God sits on His throne and is sovereignly at work, and Jesus Christ is already victorious over Satan, over the dragon himself, over the beast, over the false prophet, over everybody who works wickedness in this world. Jesus came, and by His birth 2,000 years ago, And by His life, and by His death, and by His resurrection, and ascension, and enthronement in heaven, Jesus has already claimed the fullness of victory over Satan, and over all of the forces of darkness, over death itself. And one day He will return. And the book of Revelation is divided up into into seven main sections, each of which begin with the birth of Jesus and end with the death of Jesus. And it works like cycles. It shows us through these seven sections from the birth to the death of Jesus that that's the period of time we're living in. And it's the last period of time for this world. Because when Jesus comes, He will bring this corrupt world to an end and recreate and make all things new a new heavens and a new earth and only righteousness will dwell there and only peace will dwell there and it will not be subject to decay or corruption or suffering or death or disease or sorrow and we will dwell there if we belong to him we will dwell there forever and the book of Revelation shows us In the seven sections it's divided up into, different aspects of this period of time that we're living in. God is working His purposes of judgment. God is equipping His church to stand firm and to fight the schemes of the devil and to run and to endure to the end. God is is already working, as we saw last week, to bring down Babylon, this world system of, of corruption and deception and destruction. So that when Christ returns, the victory will be consummated. Chapter 19 is the end of the sixth main section. Because it ends with the second coming of Jesus. And then there will be a final section. Again, marked by the birth of Jesus and culminating with the second coming of Jesus that shows us what lies ahead in eternity. And we're going to cover that in the next couple weeks. But here in chapter 19, there are two pictures that God paints about this life that we're living in, about this period of time between the two comings of Jesus. And these two pictures are inextricably linked together, and I want to focus mainly on the first one. But... Think, first of all, just briefly about the second one from verses 11 to 21 of Revelation chapter 19. God paints the picture of the second coming of Jesus, the return 
of the King in all of His divine glory and in the fullness of His divine judgment against all of the wickedness, against all of the unbelief, all of the satanic rebellion and corruption that is in this world which we talked about last week. And the main point, loud and clear at the end of Revelation 19, is that when Jesus comes and when God is finished pouring out all of the fullness of His judgment, which He comes to deliver at the second coming of Jesus, there won't be any wickedness left. There won't be a single unrepentant, fist-shaking, rebellious sinner left standing in all of creation. The earth will have been wiped clean of all wickedness, all that has fallen short of God's glory, and all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, all who refused to turn and call out to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And all of that, chapter 19, is teaching us not to, not to fill us with grief and sorrow, but, but in fact to give us this great and glorious picture of what God is doing to set the stage for a marvelous, spectacular, magnificent, beautiful event beyond all comparison. And that event is what verse 7 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's going to be our central focus. And I think as we focus there, God's going to give us a lot of good comfort and encouragement and hope. So in verse 11, Jesus Christ returns. 2,000 years ago, He came for the first time. He was born. And 33 years later, was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a tomb. And on the third day, He defeated death. He defeated death. He took away its sting and rose from that grave. And 40 days after that, He ascended into heaven. And as His disciples watched Him ascend into heaven, two angelic figures in white robes appeared beside them and said to them, This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. That hasn't happened yet. And that is our glorious hope as we live in this world and endure the sufferings and sorrows of this final age. The appearance, the reappearance of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. He will return bodily. He will return visibly. He will return just as He left, as the angel said in the book of Acts. And when He does, it's not going to be any kind of secret He's not going to sneak up quietly on anyone. Nobody's going to go, do you think He's here yet? It's not going to take the 8 billion people who live on this planet any amount of time at all to realize that Jesus has returned. For 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of of the trumpet of God. When Jesus returns, the whole world's going to take notice because He's going to split the, the skies open literally with all the power and glory and authority of heaven. And it's going to be visible. And it's going to be audible in a way that we've never experienced before. 
It's going to fill the air with sights and sounds that no one on this planet has ever seen or heard. Paul says when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And that means exactly what it sounds like. It means that people who lived their lives in this world by faith in Jesus and then died physically, who were in Christ, who were reborn, who were redeemed by the power of His grace, people like Mary Beth and Kathleen Lund and all the rest will rise from the dead all around the world and the watching world's going to take notice of that. And then at the same time that this is happening, we who are alive, Paul says, and who are left, who, who have lived our lives by faith in Jesus but not succumbed to death, will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as He comes to return. And we will compose that great army that's described there in chapter 19, riding on white horses. To come with our risen, victorious King who's going to make all things new. Imagine that day. And understand, it's not just imagination, it's revelation. It's not just a possibility, it's a promise. This is what will happen. Look at how chapter 19 describes Jesus in that glorious return. He rides forth out of heaven on a white horse. In ancient times, those were the horses that conquering kings rode on. White horses. If they'd been victorious in battle, they rode back into their home country on white horses. If they'd vanquished their enemies fully, they rode into the city on white horses. Jesus will ride forth from heaven as the epitome of victory and righteousness and faithfulness and truth in His conquest of everything that stands against holiness and righteousness and faithfulness and truth. He's called faithful and true. It's His name. It's who He's known as. It's what characterizes Him. It's what He is. And in the fullness of His righteousness, He will return to to wage war against everything that is wrong, and wicked in this world. His cause is the most just cause. And the punishment that he will exact perfectly fits the crime. Unrighteousness has has covered and corrupted this whole earth as we saw last week. And he will conquer it all and make everything right that is wrong in this world. Verse 12 describes him. In terms that if you've read this book and remember all the way back in chapter 1 are familiar terms. John had a vision of Jesus in chapter 1 and he's described in much the same way as he is here. And these descriptions aren't really supposed to make us picture what Jesus looks like physically. They're supposed to be vivid descriptions of what Jesus is like in His character, in His nature, in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His faithfulness, in His truthfulness. So He's he's said to have eyes like flames of fire, 
which attributes divine glory and holiness to his omniscient sight. He sees everything. He knows everything. He cares about everything that he sees and knows. There is not one speck of evil in this world that goes unnoticed by Jesus because he is the holy, all-knowing God. On his head, it says, are many diadems, crowns, symbolizing um, immeasurable, incalculable power and authority because not only is he all-knowing, he's sovereign over everything. He is the king of all kings. He is the creator, the maker, and the sovereign lord of the universe and all of history. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. It says there at the end of verse 12. But remember, if you can, the letter that he wrote to the church in Pergamum. Jesus said that if his people live by faith and endure to the end of this world, he's going to give them this name, his name, which means he's going to identify us with himself permanently and eternally with all that he is, like a bride, right? Made one. Like a bride takes the name of the groom at their wedding and becomes permanently identified with him and united to him till death do they part, but in Jesus there will be no death. And there will be no parting. Verse 13 says that as Jesus rides forth from heaven and all of the holy and almighty and sovereign righteous glory of the God who He is, He comes wearing a robe that's dipped in blood, but it's not His own blood. It's not the blood of the cross by which He saved us. This is an allusion back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 63 where, where God is is judging the nations and he says that their blood has been sprinkled on his garments. This means that there is coming a day where Jesus is coming in judgment. Verse 14, all the armies of heaven are following with him. Myriad, myriads, millions upon millions of heavenly angels and all the saints who have gone before and are dressed in white robes will will be following on white horses themselves, riding towards this cursed earth, this groaning world, bringing with them all the fullness of God's faithfulness and righteousness and holiness and judgment in order to put it to an end and make all things new. Verse 15, he has a sharp sword in his mouth, signifying the holy word of God the pure and perfect law of God, the revelation of the, the infinite holiness and gloriness of God, which will, which will indict everyone who has fallen short, which is everyone, save for those who have been given the name of Jesus and identified with Him who alone has not fallen short and united with Him through faith in His gospel. That's the imagery of bride and groom, see? None of us are worthy of heaven. None of us are worthy of glory. None of us are worthy of this eternal inheritance. But Jesus takes us as His bride. 
and makes us one with himself and says, all that I am and all that I have is yours if you belong to me. That's the only way to be saved from the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God that is revealed here at the end of Revelation chapter 19. The end of Revelation chapter 19 is is a description, an uncomfortable one, by design of, of what we all deserve. The beginning is a description of what we'll all be given if our faith is in Christ, if by faith we are joined to Him as His bride. He's the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords, verse 17 says. And and in the end there, He swings His sword. He unleashes the fury of God's wrath. He destroys all of the stubbornly unbelieving sinful people of the earth. Kings, captains, mighty men, slaves, free men, people both great and small. Verse 18, all men will fall prey to the righteous judgment of Jesus Christ. Verses 19 and 20, even the beast itself that we learned about last week and the false prophet, which is another name for the second beast that's revealed in chapter 13, they represent the They represent the secular state government, the kings of the earth, and they they represent false teaching and false religion, and they will be captured, and they will be defeated, and they will be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire forever. No one escapes. No one escapes the judgment that is coming when Jesus returns. No one can hide but in Him. There's no shelter but in Him. So the end of chapter 19 is a picture of the absolute end of this world, of this created order. Babylon has fallen, like we saw last time, the whole world system of ungodliness dashed to pieces, the beast, the false prophet, the state, false religion, idolatry, forever cast into the abyss, the whole rotted political system, the whole world economic system, every earthly power structure, all false religion, and every human being who refused to follow Jesus will be caught up in this final judgment when Jesus returns. And the good news in all of that is this, two things. First, In the judgment of God, the glory of God is manifested. The realities of God's judgment aren't pleasant, but they're realities. The realities of physical death aren't pleasant, but they're realities in this world that we are wise to come to terms with and and face. How much more with respect to the judgment of God? And for God-centered people who have God-centered hearts and who prize and prioritize the glory of God above every earthly thing and even our own lives themselves, His judgment is good because it's righteous, it's faithful, and it's true. And it makes everything that is wrong to be right. 
and it vindicates God's holy name that has been slandered in this world since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And second, the final judgment of God is good news because of what it means for the people of God who have been given faith, who have had their sins washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, who have been reconciled to God, who have been made to be the bride of the Lamb, identified fully with Him. All throughout God's Word, He he reveals to us that His relationship that He forges with His chosen people is the relationship of a husband to a bride. That's the level of intimacy. That's the depth of love. That's the level of connection that God has for us if we will come to Him through faith in Jesus. That's the kind of covenant commitment that God has bound Himself to us by. Unbreakable because of His faithfulness and love. It's his favorite picture to paint of his relationship between himself and his people, husband and wife, bride and groom, forever one. And in his word, he paints this beautiful, wonderful picture of how he chooses us to be his bride in this life, how he has, the biblical word is, betrothed himself to us. In ancient times, betrothal was similar to our engagement, but but it meant a little bit more. Betrothal was not marriage, but it was considered in itself to be a legally binding commitment that would lead to full-fledged marriage. It was a binding promise, which was meant to lead to a permanent covenant of marriage, which would happen at the wedding. And in between the betrothal and the wedding, what do you think the bride would be doing? What do brides do in between engagements and weddings? What do they do every minute of every day and most of the night even? (laughs) Before the wedding, they get ready, right? They prepare fastidiously, exhaustingly. They prepare announcements, they print invitations, they pick colors, they pick bridesmaids' dresses, they pick their dress, they pick all the accessories they're going to wear. They go to the gym and make sure they're going to fit into that dress and look fantastic in it, right? Brides do all kinds of stuff to prepare for the wedding because that's the day that they've looked forward to since they were little girls. The one day. So that on that day, they will look beautiful for their groom and everything will be as perfect as perfect can be. In this life, the Almighty God has betrothed Himself to us. He has has legally bound Himself to us in His sovereign, steadfast love. He has made us His bride through faith in Jesus Christ, and we live with this promise that when life is over for us in this world, we will be at the wedding, having been prepared and made beautiful 
for Him. And that nothing will be able to separate us from Him. And that's what Revelation 19 is proclaiming to us. As the bride of Jesus Christ, who He has betrothed to Himself in covenant commitment and, and divine love, the wedding is coming. God has redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He's forgiven our sins. He's justified us. He's united us to Christ. He's made us to be new creations in Christ. He's betrothed Himself to us and bound Himself to us in His own perfect love. And even now, even now, as we're living our lives in this world and sin remains in us and we're afflicted and persecuted and we suffer and we have sorrow from the things in this world, Even now, God is working, and even through those things, God is working to prepare us for the wedding that is coming, when we will be brought into the presence of Jesus, our groom, our king, in the eternal glories of his kingdom and righteousness, where we will worship him and praise him and commune with him and dwell with him face to face in that steadfast covenant love of God forever. That's what what Scripture portrays in terms of our relationship to God in Christ. And that's what this chapter is describing. We've, We've already been betrothed. He's already made the legal covenant. He's chosen us. He's redeemed us. He's bound Himself to us. And now He's preparing us. So, how do we, the chosen, redeemed bride of Jesus, how do we prepare for the wedding that is coming. You prepare, first and foremost, most obviously the way any bride here in this world prepares for her wedding. It's, it's the only thing she can think about until it happens, right? When you put a ring on her finger, men, you know. It's, it's like when Frodo put that ring on his finger in the Lord of the Rings and something, something strange happened, right? When the ring was on his finger, he changed. <laughs> when, you, when you put a ring on a lady's finger, something changes. And she's not living in this world the same way as she always used to. Because all she's looking ahead to is that wedding. God's put a ring on your finger if you have faith in Him. The wedding has to be all that you can see. The wedding has to be all that matters to you. The wedding has to be your one ultimate driving goal and purpose in this life. No matter what else is going on, no matter what other pleasures or joys there are, no matter what sufferings or sorrows there are, they all pale in comparison to, and they are all momentary light afflictions compared to the great wedding that lies before you. And preparing means keeping focused on that wedding. There's a lot of ways that Scripture teaches us that we are to prepare ourselves for that coming day. Revelation 19 here focuses on two of them. One, something that our gracious God does for us in preparation for the wedding. And the second one, something that He does to us, in us in preparation for the wedding. The thing that God does for us as the bride in order to prepare us for the the coming wedding 
has to do with those enemies of God who are also the enemies of God's people who would like to try to prevent the wedding from happening. These are the ones who are working in league with the dragon, Satan, and the beast who would try to persecute God's people, who would try to destroy God's people. They're they're working in league with Babylon. They would try to seduce people away from Christ by tempting them with the things of this world. False teachers, earth dwellers, worshipers of the beast, enemies of God who Satan is using to try to stop the wedding from happening in the first place. Those are the ones who the judgment of God is shown as falling on when Christ, the groom, appears to to take His bride to the wedding. All of those enemies are taken out of the way and removed from the picture, defeated, conquered, cast out in order to prepare for the uninterrupted wedding of the Lamb. So coming into the fullness of our covenant marriage to Jesus requires God removing all of the enemies of Jesus. And and here's the other side of that coin. The presence of those enemies of God in this world now and in our lives now, Babylon, the beast, the earth dwellers, Satan himself, all the ungodly powers and presences and influences in this world, the presence of those enemies have also worked through the sovereign orchestration of God, to prepare us for the wedding. By providing, in God's sovereign purposes, the fiery trials that sanctify us. The struggles and sufferings and sorrows and afflictions that in God's purposes build our character, teach us to endure, Teach us to keep our eyes fixed, not on the things of this world that that are perishing, but on all that is imperishable in Him. To cause hope to flourish in us. Because hope is only found in that which is eternal and unseen. Not the things of this world. Hope in Christ. This is why Charles Spurgeon could say this. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. Because when the struggles of this world throw me into Christ, I have hope beyond this world. Because, as John Piper explains, God is concerned about one thing and one thing only in your life, and that is that you would look like Jesus. And so He is working to Spit shine us, Piper says, to make us practically into the image of his son. He doesn't send trials to take away our joy. He sends us trials to increase our joy. He says, when I sense that a trial is coming, I pray that God would receive maximum glory out of it. Jerry Bridges He's commenting on the verses that we read in Romans 8, 28 and 29 a few minutes ago. He says, God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of His children. God never allows Satan or circumstances or any ill-intending person to afflict us unless He uses that affliction for our good. 
to prepare us, to spit shine us, to strengthen us and purify us as his bride for the day of the wedding. Bridges says, God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more and more to the likeness of his son. So the first thing that God does to prepare us as the bride of Christ for the wedding of the Lamb is to sovereignly use his own enemies and the trials that they bring into this world and into our lives in order to sanctify us, in order to purify us like the refiner's fire, like the fuller's soap. And then, eventually, he works to remove those enemies from the picture altogether so that the wedding of the Lamb will be unhindered for all of eternity. And the second thing that God does to help us be prepared for the wedding is something that he does to us, in us. And it's revealed here in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 19, in the middle of this, this scene of worship that's going on in heaven, in the opening part of the chapter. There's a great multitude in heaven, and they're all crying out and giving praise to God because of what had happened that we saw last week in chapter 17 and 18 with the fall of Babylon. And they all say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and just because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted this world. And in verse 4, those powerful heavenly angelic creatures that surround God's throne in heaven um, aren't the only ones who are worshiping God all of a the sudden. They command the worship of God literally from every corner of creation. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and you who fear Him small and great. God has shown Himself to be holy and just and true and powerful. He's worthy of the praises of heaven and earth. And so it's, it's commanded the, the angels in heaven become the worship leaders. And in verse 6, that heavenly chorus of praise and worship begins and it swells to a, a crescendo. And it, it becomes, John says, like a, a glorious cacophony of voices that, that reminds him of thunder crashing through the skies or a massive waterfall crashing down on the rocks. And it all becomes focused on what God has done, not only in His holy judgment, but His holy mercy in order to redeem people for Himself and prepare us for the wedding. And notice at the end of verse 7 there that it says that, that in preparing us for the wedding, it says that the bride has made herself ready for the wedding. And then right there in verse 8, it says that that preparation involves our righteous deeds, our pursuit of holiness in this life, our sanctification, our growth in grace. So the picture is of a bride preparing herself for a wedding. She, she, again, she, in an actual wedding here in this world, she picks out the dress, she gets her hair styled, she does her makeup, she does everything she can to make herself 
as pleasing and as beautiful as possible for her groom. Well, see, that's the image here of the bride of Christ, betrothed, getting ready now in in your life, now every day for the wedding that is to come. But, But the picture isn't of being concerned with earthly clothing, earthly appearances and and what we look like on the outside, the picture is, is of becoming beautiful for Christ our groom on the inside, in our hearts, in our lives, by crucifying sin and adorning ourselves with the deeds of righteousness and holiness. But notice that where verse 7 says that the bride has made herself ready, putting on these garments of holiness, verse 8 says that it was granted to her. To do that. And I'll tell you, that's the best news ever. This is the all important truth of Scripture that while we're saved by God's grace alone and through God's grace alone, apart from good works that we do to earn His favor, like Paul says in Romans 3, without works, that saving faith isn't saving, it's dead. Can't save anyone, like James says. True faith in Christ is living faith in Christ. And vital living faith is always bearing the fruit of holiness. So trusting Christ to save us from sin and death and condemnation and the judgment that is to come and welcome us into the wedding feast is the kind of faith that always results in the fruit of growing holiness and righteousness in our lives. It results in us following Him and abandoning our sin and Pursuing righteousness. And the great truth of Scripture is is that all of that preparation comes as a result of His work and His power in our lives to make us capable of doing that work. See, we were the unfaithful, unclean, immoral woman in the gutter Living in all of us, living in filth and squalor and poverty, who God came and scooped up and said, I want you to be my bride, and I betroth, I betroth myself to you, and there's going to be a beautiful wedding one day. And we say, I have no, I have nothing, I have no means of making myself worthy of that wedding and presentable even for that wedding. And God says, Don't worry, I have it all. And everything in his bank account is, is at our disposal in order to make ourselves pure and be made pure. And so when Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2, it's a command that's connected to that great encouragement and assurance that it is, it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And it's in that same sense that Paul assures us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 that while it's by grace that we have been saved through faith and not of our own doing, not by works, but as the gift of God, not as a result of anything that we've done so none of us can boast, we're also assured that this gift that God gives isn't just salvation from the penalty of sin, it's also deliverance from the power And even the presence of sin in our lives so that Paul can also assure us in the same passage that we are God's workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God Himself prepared beforehand. (laughs) Here's the dress I've prepared for you to wear. Here's the jewelry. Here's the makeup. Here's the perfume. Here's the hairstylist. Here's everything you need to look good enough for my son at the wedding. And I give it all to you freely. Just put it on. Take off everything else you've been wearing and put it on. Because God has prepared these good deeds beforehand that we should walk in them. And so when Hebrews urges us in chapter 12 to strive for the holiness without which we won't see the Lord, it's not saying that we'll ever be saved or or justified because of something that we achieved in our lives. But at the same time, it is saying that there is no, if there is no holiness in our lives, if there is no actual fruit being born from living vital faith in Christ, no actual growth, no actual progress in sanctification and holiness, then what that means is that we never had a living, saving faith in Jesus in the first place. And that's supposed to That's supposed to cause Christians to feel this urgency to diligently strive after and make every effort to live by this holiness and righteousness that's defined by Christ and in God's Word, knowing that every step that we take in that direction is only empowered by His grace. And know this, Apart from that, apart from putting on all that God has prepared for us beforehand, we won't be led into the wedding feast of the Lamb. There will be many who say, Lord, Lord, who show up for the feast improperly clothed because whatever they said with their mouths didn't translate into any preparation in this life. And Jesus, the groom, will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So when verse 8 says that it was granted to the bride to clothe herself in the pure white linen of her righteous deeds, I mean, that should elicit massive praise in our hearts, right? Because the holiness that God requires of us isn't possible for us unless He supplies it to us by His divine power working within us. Holiness is our absolutely necessary responsibility, even though it is absolutely not according to our natural ability. And so He gives us the ability that we don't have in ourselves. He supplies the grace. He transforms us. He conforms us to the image of His Son. He causes us to be able to run and not be weary and soar on wings like eagles. It's His divine power, Peter says, that's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so for that reason, because God's given everything to us, we have to be diligent and make every effort to pursue virtue and godliness and love and holiness and all the rest. He took us out of the gutter. He washed us clean. He sewed us our wedding garments. He clothed us and is clothing us already as He enables us to put sin to death and put righteousness on. So that when we come... As the bride of Jesus to this great wedding feast will be prepared, beautifully adorned in the holiness that glorifies Him. 
Spurgeon said, What righteousness we have, imparted by the power of the Spirit, imputed by the decree of God. Every form of righteousness will go to make up the believer's outfit. Only all of it is granted, and none of it is purchased by our own merit. At the feast, we shall not have only Christ's righteousness to cover up our sin, for when we come there, we shall no longer have any sin to cover, because He will have made us pure. We shall not want Christ's righteousness to make an evil heart seem pure. We shall be as perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, washed in the blood of the Lamb. We shall have no spot upon us or within us. We will have complete righteousness. And in this arrayed, we shall be covered with the beauty of holiness. And that will be a glorious day to come into the presence of our glorious, beautiful Lord, fully prepared, fully clothed so that we can dwell in perfect communion with Him forever. Now, this picture of this wedding feast comes straight out of God's Word, of course, but was spoken of prior to the revelation that John received of it by Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 22, where He spoke of the same thing. Just listen. You can turn to Matthew 22 if you want. But just listen. In verse 1 of Matthew 22, Jesus was speaking in parables and He said, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now the son, of course, represents Jesus and the father is God the father. Understand that when Jesus spoke this parable, it was actually on Wednesday of the last week of his life before the crucifixion on Friday. So what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that that first the Father sent servants out to call people to come to the feast, but they refused. Those servants were the Old Testament prophets who spoke to Israel that the Messiah was coming and bringing the kingdom But the people wouldn't believe. They wouldn't trust in the true Messiah. And so Jesus says in the parable, So he sent other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my calves, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention and they went off back to their farms and businesses. I think there he's talking about John the Baptist and the disciples who were proclaiming the the kingdom to the people of Israel when Jesus was, was there on the scene, ministering in Israel in flesh and blood, and people still wouldn't come. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't believe in Him. And then Jesus says not only were they indifferent and went back to work because they were too busy with their earthly concerns to be concerned about this great eternal wedding feast, not only... That, but he says they, there were those who seized the servants who had come to invite them to the feast. They seized the servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Well, that's exactly what they did, right? To Jesus himself. They seized him. They killed him. To the disciples who were martyred as well, they seized him. They killed him. People weren't just indifferent. They were wicked in their response to the invitation. And so Jesus says the king was angry. 
And he sent out his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. They'd, they'd rejected Jesus. They'd rejected their Messiah and his invitation to the wedding feast. They'd murdered him and his servants. And so judgment came on Jerusalem. And then, listen, then Jesus speaks the gospel in Matthew 22, verse 8. So instead, God said to his servants, well, look, the wedding feast is ready. It's ready already. It's prepared. It's beautiful. But all those who we've already invited are not worthy. All those Old Testament people who rejected it. All those people living at the time of Jesus who rejected it and nailed him to the cross and killed the disciples. They weren't worthy. So instead, God invited other people, Jesus said. Go, therefore, out to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast anyone you can find. (laughs) And those servants went out into the roads and, and now the servants are us. Go out to the roads and they gathered all who they found, both bad and good, it says. Those in the gutters, tattooed up all over their bodies, addicted to drugs, sinning in all kinds of ways. Come to the wedding. Get cleaned up. Get prepared and come to the wedding. Anybody. And in this way, the wedding hall was filled with guests. So people from every walk of life, right? From every tribe, every tongue, every nation. People who lived outwardly decent lives, tax-paying conservatives, and people who were outwardly pretty wretched in this world. The apostles of Jesus went out and we go out, make a blanket invitation for all to come. The poor, the weak, the destitute, the unworthy. See, that's who Jesus invites. The unworthy like me and you and all the rest of us who have fallen short of his glory. Not the righteous. Jesus didn't come as the great physician for those who had no need of a physician, but for those who were sick and dead desperately in their sins, like me, like you. This is how the kingdom works. The people who thought that they were worthy, either because, well, they were, they were the Jewish people, and so that made them inherently worthy despite their sinfulness and rejection of God, or They were the physical offspring of Abraham or they had the scriptures or they followed the law rigorously like the Pharisees or they were righteous in their own selves. They thought they were worthy, turned out to be unworthy. And everybody that we might be tempted to look at and say they're unworthy are the ones that God actually brings and cleans up and dresses up to be his bride. So this is what verse 11 in Matthew 22 says. When the king came in and looked at his guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man couldn't answer. And the king said, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. For many are called, but few are chosen. That also is how the kingdom works. You can't just call yourself the bride without getting ready for the wedding. 
The kingdom is never populated by people who deserve to be there because of what they've done, who have earned themselves a seat. God doesn't look down on anyone on this earth and say, that person in themselves has what it takes to be the bride of my son and a guest at my feast. No, the the kingdom is, is filled with unworthy sinners, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. And at the same time, the only ones he accepts are those who he also clothes with the garments of righteousness and holiness, making us ready. And that urges us, doesn't it? In light of eternity, not to be concerned so much with the things of this world that are like vapor, that are like dust, that don't last, that you can't take, that you can't keep but to be concerned about the wedding and about the holiness and the righteousness, no matter what it costs in terms of suffering or loss even in this world. Whatever cross you have to bear in God's providence, all that matters, all that matters is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And by His grace, being prepared for that great celebration. And what a celebration it will be, right? He will swallow up death forever, the prophet says. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is your God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. You are the betrothed of Christ if your faith is in Him. You are waiting for Him to return. And as you wait, keep your eyes fixed on that coming and on that feast which will last for eternity. And be prepared. Strip off all the old garments of sinfulness and ungodliness and worldliness and fleshliness and selfishness and pride. And put on the righteousness and the peace and the love and the holiness of Jesus as the wedding garments that he has prepared. And walk by faith and run with endurance. And one day you will fall asleep in this world and wake up in glory. Or Jesus will return and split the skies open, and gather you unto His own, and bring you home. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Our God and our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for its power in our lives. We thank You that it is the Gospel of Jesus Christ that is the very power of God unto salvation, and that it is this message, it is this truth, it is this promise, it is this hope by which you have crucified us with Jesus and put us to death with our enslavement to sin and bondage to the flesh and to everything in this world and trying to make it our hope and security and assurance. And that you have raised us to newness of life in Christ. And made things that are unseen our hope. 
For by grace we have been saved through faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so to run with endurance, to to not need the things of this world that cannot last. But to satisfy our souls with Him and with all that is ours in Him. And so, Father, we love You and we praise You and we give You thanks for the hope that is ours, even as our souls grieve the loss of loved ones in this world. We know, Father, that we are the bride of Christ and there is an eternity awaiting us in His presence where we will all be together with the Lord, reunited with those we've said goodbye to in this world and forever singing praises to You and dwelling in the presence of Your glory. Give us this hope and give us strength and courage and consolation from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.